Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Turkey. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Harry Munt joins the show again. On June 28, 2021, Dr. Munt joined the show and we had a conversation about the previous Rashidun Caliphate period and their associated hegemony in the Mediterranean basin. Today we're going to speak about and explore what scholars know about the previous Abbasid Caliphate's hegemony in the Mediterranean Basin. Dr. Munt is a senior lecturer in medieval history at the University of York, based in the UK. He's author of the monograph, The Holy City of Medina, Sacred Space in Early Islamic Arabia, and that was published by Cambridge University Press. And Dr. Munt joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back on the show, Harry. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me again. Good to connect with you again, Harry, as always. So to create background and context, who were the Abbasids? The Abbasids were a dynasty that came uh, to control the Caliphate in the mid-8th century. Um, they themselves were descendants of a man called Al-Abbas, who was an uncle of the Prophet Muhammad. And they came to power as part of a revolutionary movement that uh, aimed to replace the existing Umayyad caliphs with a member of the family of the prophet. Uh, this sort of revolutionary movement had been going on underground for some time, but in 747, it, the sort of the rebellion was declared openly uh, in Central Asia near the city of Marov um, by a man called Abu Muslim. And over the next couple of years, between 747 and uh, 749, the movement conquered most of the eastern lands of the Caliphate. In 749, they conquered the city of Kufa in Iraq. Uh, Kufa, along with Basra, was, they were the two main sort of administrative centers for the eastern lands of the Caliphate. And the, after this movement had conquered Kufa in 749, the, uh, a member of the Abbasid family uh, called Abu Abbas was declared to be the Caliph. Um, there was still a bit of uh, of warfare still to go. Uh, at the time they declared Abu Abbas to be caliph, there was still an Umayyad caliph uh, called Marwan, but he was defeated in battle uh, near the river Zab in northern Iraq, southeast Turkey, the following year in 750. Um, he fled, but uh, a, a pursuing army caught him in Egypt in 750, where he was killed. So 749, 750, that's the, that's the time that the Abbasids really come to power as caliphs and replace the previous Umayyad dynasty. When the Abbasids came into rule, can you describe what geographic demarcation they would have been inheriting at that point in time? Sure. So, um, so perhaps it's best if I just start with the, at the end of the Umayyad caliphate, the Umayyads ruled territory really from, uh, so the Iberian Peninsula and Morocco in the west, all the way to uh, Central Asia. The Abbasids took over most of this territory, but some of the lands in the far west uh, never actually became part of the Abbasid Caliphate. So uh, a member of the Umayyad family uh, fleeing west set up a, an Umayyad emirate in Al-Andalus, what's now Spain and Portugal. Um, and so that, that land never became part of the Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, they did... Uh, inherit most of the rest of the Umayyad territories, although uh, quite early on they they also lost control over uh, the sort of the far west region of North Africa as well, roughly what's now Morocco, uh, to a rival to a rival power. So really it's from sort of it's from the region we call Ifriqiya, so 
I guess, sort of much of Algeria and Tunisia today, all the way through along the southern shores of the Mediterranean and then through Syria, Iraq, Arabia to Iran and lands into Central Asia, east of Iran. Okay. And the and as as you know and listeners know the 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 catchment and focus of the of this show is on the mediterranean basin so we'll spend more of the time in the conversation in in that catchment area can you can you speak about what's known about there actually before i ask this question so that we have the full scope of their reign can you summarize when um when it does their what does their rule rule uh, end what year or approximate year and can can you summarize what what is necessary just so that we have the the um the the, the dates as a parameter for the conversation today yeah it's actually for the abbasids it's actually a surprisingly complicated question um the very simple date is that the the last abbasid caliph in iraq is killed in 1258 when the mongols uh, conquer the city of baghdad which was the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, but uh, it, so 1258 is often given as the, uh, as the, uh, that, that Mongol conquest of Baghdad as the, as the end point of the Abbasid Caliphate. It's, it's slightly misleading in two, in two directions in a way. There, there, actually, there actually is a sort of successor Abbasid Caliphate in, in Egypt after that, uh, under the, well, Egypt's under the rule of the Mamluk dynasty at that point, and they maintain a sort of puppet Abbasid Caliph until the Ottomans conquer Egypt in 1517. But it's also misleading the other way as well, because although the Abbasids of Iraq remain in power until, 12, until the Mongols sack of Baghdad, um, they actually, they're, they, they're, not, they're not in control of all this territory directly from the period between 750 and 1258. They're, for maybe a century and a half or so, 750 to the late ninth century, they're largely in control of many of these territories, but from the late ninth century and then particularly through the tenth century, the Abbasid Caliphs actually lose direct control of quite a lot of the territories of their caliphate. So we start to see regional powers emerging all the way from North Africa right through to Central Asia, um, where local dynasties sort of establish their own positions of power, although they maintain some form of relationship with with this figure of the Abbasid Caliph in Iraq. So in terms of this podcast talking about thinking about Abbasid specifically and their their role, the Abbasid specifically and their role in the Mediterranean, um, it's really sort of, I guess, when they come to power in 750 through to, you know, sort of through to the 10th century is when they're when they're directly important players in that part of the world. Okay. Can you summarize what's known about their governance? in the areas of the Mediterranean basin? And I ask that, that question broadly, so feel, feel free to take the liberty to, to um, respond as you feel necessary. And, and what, what I'm interested too to know is if, if there's any real distinguishing differences in how they governed than the previous caliphate, the Umayyads. Okay, so... Yeah, I guess I guess how they governed is is a fairly broad question. Um, I suspect there's still a lot of differences between between provinces. So, um, I mean, the the populations of different parts of what we often call the Islamic world are quite are quite various. So, in some part, some provinces have got far greater numbers of non-Muslims, for example, than others. Uh, some have got a far more sort of Arabic uh, 
Arab militarized presence than other provinces. So I think there will have been local variations depending on factors such as these and who the local elites were in different provinces. Of course, caliphs, caliphs might like the claim that they have complete authority and control, but they, they only do insofar as they can negotiate with local elites. Uh, so the makeup of those local elites across different provinces will play an important role. Um, I think in with regards to how whether they introduce many changes from the Umayyads, I mean, I, I suppose, as in all cases, administrative changes are probably more gradual than revolutionary. Um, the revolutionary changes will have been replacing Umayyad family members in important positions with Abbasid family members and key Abbasid supporters. So governors of lots of provinces will become Abbasid family members straight away rather than key Umayyad supporters. But lower down you expect lower down the administration, you expect to see uh, much more continuity. It, one thing that the Abbasids maybe do a, a bit more a bit more than the Umayyads is tax people more thoroughly. Um, there are in the let's say the first half century to century of Abbasid rule, there seems to be growing discontent in many regions of their caliphates over over the levels of taxation. Um, it may not be that they raise taxation more than they tried to collect it more efficiently, um, but we do see quite a lot of revolts in against Abbasid rule in the first yeah, half century to century of their of their rule. And many of those seem to be focused around uh, refusal to pay the, the demanded taxes. So it's possible that they made some, you know, some noteworthy changes in that field. The Umayyads capital was and I'm maybe um, more than one capital but I know that for the for most of the period with the Umayyads the capital was in uh, Damascus Dr. Antoine Barrett had had called that I've heard him call that uh, an administrative uh, capital who's going to be on the show uh, soon so do scholars believe that the Abbasids had a capital or uh, capitals in this period that we're speaking about today, and if it wasn't in Damascus, why do you think they moved it away from Damascus? Uh, yeah, I mean the Abbasids are, are associated with a particular. Well, they have at various phases um, some different capital cities, but they're particularly associated with the city of Baghdad, um, which was founded in central Iraq by the second Abbasid Caliph Al Mansur in 762. Uh, this was founded to be a to very much be a capital city, a palatial centre for the Abbasid family, um, and it, it rapidly grew, of course, into a into a very large and economically very important and culturally very important city as well. But it was founded as a as an administrative and symbolic centre for the for the Abbasid family. Um, why did they move away from Damascus? I think Damascus probably was quite heavily associated with their Umayyad predecessors, the Abbasids in their in the sort of rebellious movement that brought them to power had depended um, on support from uh, soldiers and inhabitants who were based more in the eastern lands of the caliphate i mentioned that the rebellion had started near Marof in central asia so i think there there was probably a a more eastward focus to their to their networks and their their power their relationships that helped keep them in power um, there's lots of anecdotes in sources about why baghdad was an ideal place to found a capital city I mean these range from anecdotes about astronomers uh, predicting what a what a wonderful city it would be to um, people pointing out that because of its location 
just off the, uh, on the uh, on the west bank of the Tigris and where the Tigris and the Euphrates are quite close to each other it was a, it had very easy communications to lots of other parts of the caliphate as well uh, so that that's probably among the reasons why they they moved the capital further east but Baghdad throughout the Abbasid period remains really the sort of I don't know the the, the main sort of symbolic centre of Abbasid rule, but they do have other capital cities as well, um, and some caliphs are particularly associated with cities elsewhere. So for much of the ninth century, between the mid-830s and uh, the early 890s, um, many Abbasid caliphs reside in a city called Samarra, about 60 miles north of Baghdad along the Tigris, um, and there they, so that for that period is the is the main sort of where the, is the main residence of most of the caliphs and where their military and administrative support is based. Uh, but Baghdad, again, still remains a sort of culturally and symbolically important city. And eventually, the Abbasid caliphs do move back to Baghdad in, in the 890s. Some, thinking about this podcast, interest in the Mediterranean, I mean, some Abbasid caliphs do do move a bit further west in their residence. So. Uh, the Caliph Harun al-Rashid in the late 8th and early 9th centuries, uh, for about 10 years or so, bases himself mostly in the city of Raqqa in Syria on the Euphrates, and he's very much uh, looking towards the, the frontier with Byzantium in that decision. Um, so there are, there, are, there are vague attempts to, to bring Syria more directly into you know, caliphal residential politics, but but Baghdad in Iraq remains the main center of Abbasid rule. For the territories that they had hegemony over in this period of time, with with the focus, of course, again on the on the Mediterranean basin ones, what was their religious policy? Um, that's a very interesting question. They, I said they they're from. The, they're from the family of the prophet and when they came to power this was a reasonably wide there was widely understood uh, term and lots of different families could claim membership of the family of the prophet so they had they had rivalries with other uh, members of this family particularly the descendants of the prophet's cousin ali um and Lots of lots of groups that eventually uh, end up uh, being labelled as, as Shia um, follow uh, believe that the caliphate should have belonged to Ali and his descendants. So they they have rivalries uh, with with those with with Shi Muslims as well. Um, so they and they eventually, I guess, are understood as having been Sunnis, and some of them are, are very famous for promoting. For promoting Sunnism, but they're in the, especially in the first century or so of their rule, their relationship with emerging Sunnism is a bit is a bit fractious. Uh, one caliph called Al Mamun, who reigned from uh, eight thirteen to eight thirty three, uh, near the end of his reign in the sort of in the early eight thirties, launched I guess what, what's often seen as a major attack on on Sunni religious scholars. He 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 came up with this idea to uh, insist that that people, uh, judges in particular, people holding religious appointments in his empire, subscribe to this view that the uh, that the Quran was created, and we we didn't we didn't go into the theology behind this, but it, this was seen as a challenge to the Sunni religious establishment, and it was carried on by a couple of his successors as well. So for a, 
for a couple of decades in the mid ninth century, the Abbasid caliphs were, were quite antagonistic towards some, some of, the, of, the Sunni, uh, of the emerging Sunni establishments. But then after those couple of decades, um, a caliph called Al-Mutawakkil, I guess, decided it was better to get support from the Sunni religious establishment. So he, he kind of, he abandoned his predecessor's policy and, and moved back more in line with those. And after him, lots of Abbasid caliphs um, try sometimes to, to show off their, their Sunni credentials. So in terms of internal Muslim religious policies, that's, that's, some, of the, that's some of the things that are going on. The, of course, um, a huge numbers, the majority of the populations that they rule over are non-Muslims. And they, uh, the Abbasid caliphs, uh, you know, work quite hard to forge relationships with, with non-Muslim uh, elites as well. Um, so um, bishops and patriarchs and of officials like that for Christians, for example. Um, so they, and they try and sort of work with other communities as well. And, and actually some Abbasid caliphs again try to, occasionally can be seen trying to interfere in the sort of internal politics of other religious communities as well um, in various ways at, at various times. Did the Shia movement have anything to do with them losing some territory in Northern Africa in this period? Yeah, so the, they lose some territory in Northern Africa to a, to a descendant of Ali called Idris, who um, his family had, well, they'd launched a few rebellions uh, against, against Abbasid rule over the first sort of three, four decades. Um, and one family member in the 780s launches a rebellion in Arabia. That's, it's, quite, it's not militarily significant. It's quite easily crushed. But uh, it leads to the flight of members of this family to different parts of the Islamic world and uh, this one of them one of these individuals Idris goes to goes to North Africa where he, he sort of establishes his own center of power in in Fez in what's now Morocco so in that sense uh, in that sense sort of allied or Shi rivalry um, against the Abbasids yeah does is, is one of the factors that starts to starts to lead to certain provinces uh, breaking away it becomes more important later on in the in the 10th century um, uh, an allied group known as the Fatimids take power in in North Africa in what's now Tunisia in the in the very early 10th century in 909 and from there they they declare they actually declare themselves caliphs as as rivals to the Abbasids and they then conquer quite a lot of North Africa they uh, get as far as Egypt and found the city of Cairo there as, as their sort of palatial center in 969 and and then managed to make some conquest further west as well into Syria and Palestine and Arabia so, so again, we can see Shi'i uh, opposition to Abbasid rule being a key factor in, in their loss of territory in North Africa there as well. To what degree would you say that inhabitants in these territories that we're speaking about who weren't Muslim before this period became Muslim during this period? I mean, it's a, it's a very hard question to answer because of the evidence that we have at our at our hands to, to look into this. Um, there's a, a very famous effort uh, a few decades ago now by um, Richard Bullitt to, to quantify, if you like, um, rates of conversion. Uh, he, he 
so I guess I guess sort of argued that um, conversion uh, is slow at first, and then it speeds up, and then once the certain threshold has been passed, starts to slow down again. Uh, and some of his conclusions suggested that maybe over the ninth century, tenth century, is when the rate of conversion to Islam was quickest. Uh, that and there's lots of there's lots of well well known problems with with the material. The evidence we have tends to be focused on urban communities. Uh, it also tends to be focused quite heavily on people who eventually did become Muslim. So in a way, we're looking at the evidence we have is best for conversion rates in cities among people who did end up converting. So uh, a lot of our evidence ignores the communities that never converted. Uh, but I guess I guess there probably was some picking up of conversion to Islam in many of these regions over the ninth and 10th centuries. But that doesn't mean that a majority of the population had necessarily become Muslim by that time. Some estimates for Egypt, for example, suggest that it's not really until the later 14th, 15th centuries that the majority of the population becomes Muslim. We don't really have a way of knowing how, ac how accurate that is, but I think, I think it gives some idea that we should be thinking of a very gradual process in many parts of the caliphate rather than a sort of rapid, rapid increase in, in conversion to Islam. Are they considered to have been, are they considered to have done a lot of seafaring and did they have any substantial island holdings in the Mediterranean during this period of time? Um, I, mean, I don't think the Abbasids themselves were known as great seafarers, but um, they certainly had under their under their command people who who were um, in the already in the Umayyad period. We've seen uh, in the Mediterranean the establishment of of naval bases and attempts to create a navy that could that could challenge the Byzantines in particular for control of for control of the Eastern Mediterranean. And uh, particularly from the from the Muslim standpoint, uh, uh, help advance the the ultimate ambition of conquering Constantinople, the great imperial city. So the Abbasids certainly carried that on, and we do see throughout the sort of ninth and tenth centuries important naval uh, interactions in in the Mediterranean and the Eastern Mediterranean. A, a lot of it, a lot of this will be under Abbasid control, but some of it will be uh, led by led by groups that are acting independently of Abbasid control. Um, although, although ultimately, perhaps recognising ultimate Abbasid authority, a good, a good example would be uh, the invasion of Sicily. So Sicily is invaded in 827 initially. It takes the best part of a century for the island to be uh, fully conquered, but it's, it's, it, the invasion starts in 827, and it, it comes from North Africa, from what's now Tunisia. And Tunisia at this time is ruled by a group known as the Uglabids. Uh, the Uglabids are often seen as an independent dynasty, and to some extent they were, but they were a local independent dynasty that fully um, advertised their loyalty to the Abbasid Caliphs. They saw themselves as the notional deputies of the Abbasids in, in this part of North Africa. So, so in that sense, we can still talk about Abbasid ultimate authority. So yeah, Sicily's uh, invaded and there's lots of fighting there over, over the ninth century. Uh, there are uh, emirates are established uh, for a brief period, a couple of decades in the mid ninth century in Bari and Taranto in Italy. Uh, Rome itself uh, uh, um, in the 840s, uh, a raiding uh, party from the sea gets quite close to Rome itself. And there's a battle, uh, a battle at Ostia 
in uh, 849, a naval battle just off Ostia in 849 that saves Rome from, from being sacked then. In the east, uh, yes, I mean, there are, there are sort of, there are conquests in the, in the Alberta period. So Crete is invaded in the 820s uh, and eventually becomes a sort of Muslim-held, a Muslim-held island. Uh, although again, that's another one where it's hard to say who who's really in charge of that conquest. We're we're told that it was conquered by a group of Andalusis who had been expelled from Al Andalus and had ended up in Alexandria, in Egypt. Who then went and raided Crete and gradually conquered conquered the island. So again, quite quite how closely you can link that to Abbasid authority is questionable. But but it's something that goes that it goes on and happens. While they're while they're in charge of the eastern Mediterranean provinces, uh, and again, na naval naval warfare become is still quite important over the rest of the ninth century. Uh, there's quite a famous uh, event in in the very early tenth century in 904, I think the the city of the Byzantine city of Thessaloniki uh, is 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 attacked by a by a naval fleet um, from from Abbasid territory. And uh, and and that 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 that's sort of quite a a memorable a memorable event in sort of terrible event in Byzantine history. So they are they, people acting on their behalf are quite active in the Mediterranean. Yeah. In a cursory search online, I saw a spot in the Dalmatian coast where they had territory at some point, uh, eastern Italy. It, it, does does that sound congruent to you? Is there evidence that they also had holdings in those those areas? Yeah, I mentioned in in Italy there were these brief emirates in Bari and Taranto. I mean, again, how quite to what extent the the people occupying these territories really had much to do with the Abbasids is is, is questionable. But that, although they probably did at least loosely recognise their authority as caliphs um, in 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 the Aegean, yes, I mean, I think there 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 are. It's hard to I think it's hard to say when territories are really occupied by by Abbasid forces apart apart from the example of Crete I gave but um it's definitely um sort of f uh, raiding fighting in the in the Aegean area is is something that goes on throughout quite a lot of this period it's come up on the show in the past that the term khalifa the english cognate caliph wasn't always used in some of these early centuries to describe the head of the Islamic State. I understand it was used in some instances, but not consistently in some of the early centuries. So by the period that we're speaking about today, was the term Khalifa, Caliph, used regularly to describe the head of the state? The, the person we call the Abbasid Caliph would almost undoubtedly have been very happy being referred to as Khalifa. Um, it, is, it is true that the quite a few figures that we call caliphs um in so in documents that might be issued in their name uh, sort of official administrative or state state documents are more commonly referred to by the title amir al-mu'minin um so com commander of the believers and that seems to be a more sort of formal title but but um lots of them do they clearly are called caliphs. We have lots of evidence from uh, chronicles and poetry of courtiers 
you know always refer constantly referring to the to, to these rulers as caliphs um so i'm 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 i'm, I'm sure that all these abati figures would definitely have been known as caliphs um there are some of the, uh, there's also a, a term imam as well um lots of abati caliphs uh, will have will have claimed this term as well as sort of alluding to the to the uh, religious authority alongside the term caliph that they that they held as well. So th th there, there are sort of different terms, but Khalifa would, is, is, is a commonly encountered term to refer to, to the Abbasids, yes. How much coordination and how centralized with administration and decision-making would you describe this caliphate to have been? Their capital wasn't in the Mediterranean basin. They held for most of the period that we're speaking about, a lot of territory in the Mediterranean basin, but also territory outside of the Mediterranean basin. So there would have been these different territories. Uh, we, could, we could probably use the term province to describe them. I think you used that, that earlier. How would you describe the level of coordination and, and how centralized this, this state was? was a lot of the governance and administration being almost entirely run by the different territories in the Mediterranean basin, or was it more centralized than that? I think that I'm, I'm going to come back to my, my, my old answer of that there, there are differences between provinces. I think Abbasid caliphs and the people who ran their, their administrations in, in, in at the center, say, say in Baghdad, will have had grand centralizing ambitions. They wanted tax revenues to come from provinces. They wanted to be able to directly appoint at least high level officials like governors, sometimes judges in different provinces. And they wanted to be able to replace those officials when they wanted, when they felt it was necessary as well. And for much of the first, at least the first century or so of Abbasid rule, I think we can see in in many regions that being the case they 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 you know abbasi caliphs based in iraq won't have paid too much attention to the day-to-day -day running of affairs in say egypt but they will have played a role in appointing the officials who did and they will have and their administrations will have played a role in in putting certain demands for tax revenue uh, to each of the provinces that said of course once once the power of the caliphs become, and even their authority becomes a bit diminished. It's quite easy for those more local officials to start going their own way and start refusing to send taxes back to the centre, or even and even starting to refuse to stand down as as, as governor when they're told to stand down. And from the mid 9th century, we see, and then certainly through the 10th century, we see that happening much more. There are parts of the caliphate where Abbasids. Caliphs themselves did take a more sort of direct role. Uh, I guess for this podcast focus, the, the most interesting of those is probably the frontier with Byzantium. So the with the Byzantine Empire, the several several Abbasid caliphs at points in their reigns did take quite a direct interest in this area. I mentioned Harun al-Rashid earlier had it's based his his, his center of power for a decade or so in the Syrian city of Raqqa. He was quite, he was someone who was quite keen to, to see himself as associated with war against the Byzantines on the, along the frontier. 
uh, he he in court ceremonial he was he was portrayed as a as a holy warrior uh, fighting against the, the the great rival empire um, and he and he was and he was present in that region several several caliphs actually were I was going to say they led campaigns against the Byzantines themselves. I'm not I'm not quite sure how close to the very front of the campaigns they were, but they were at least sort of leading in the vicinity. Uh, so Harun al-Rashid and then uh, his son, uh, al-Ma'mun. Uh, Al-Ma'mun, his son, actually died in Tarsus in what's now southern Turkey uh, while, while, leading a, while leading a campaign towards Byzantine territory. And al-Ma'mun's successor then, al-Mu'tasim himself, also led campaigns in that region. So there are parts of the caliphate where we can see individual caliphs take outside of Iraq taking a more direct interest. The Byzantine frontier, uh, definitely through the late 8th and much of the 9th century, is definitely one of those areas. Were they min minting any coinage in the Mediterranean basin in some of these territories? And what can you say about their coinage? Yeah, they're, um, they're, their officials in most of these provinces will have been minting coins on their behalf. It will have had uh, reference to then, let's say, coins minted in Egypt, for example, will have mentioned the Abbasid Caliphs name and perhaps some of his titles as well to to at least while Egypt was under Abbasid rule to to show to show their allegiance there. Um coinage is as I'm sure has come up on other episodes of this podcast before is one of the is one of the is one of the easiest ways that we as historians can act, can access um sort of how claims to authority were being made or recognized. Um, and when the Abbasid start to face a competition from rivals for the caliphate particularly the fatimids uh we can see like provinces the inhabitants of certain perhaps let's call them border provinces deciding whether to you know whether they mint coins in the name of one caliph or another um uh, as a sign that you know authorities being powers being contested in those regions but i mean while the abbasis are in control of territories yes i mean they mint coins that are, that are minted in their name they they follow the the umayyad precedent of having um, their coins are just uh, Arab, most of their coins anyway, at least on precious metals, are, are Arabic inscriptions only. There's no, there's no images of, of reigning caliphs or anything like that. What was the main writing system and language that was used, writing system or, or systems, language or, or lang languages, if you feel that um, there should be more than one of each mentioned? So what was the main writing system and language used in this in the state in these territories that we're speaking about and is this a case where the given writing system and language was ubiquitous amongst its inhabitants or would it have been more of a case of a ver uh, a manifold of different writing systems and languages that were being used that may have been more indigenous to those particular areas so across the lands of the abbasid caliphate there will be a large number of different languages spoken by the inhabitants and uh, perhaps slightly fewer, but still a wide range of languages that were written and in different scripts. The language of Abbasid administration is Arabic and in the Arabic scripts. Uh, this is a period, the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries is a period where the use of the Arabic language, at least in writing, is also growing. So there are plenty of other languages that are being spoken, especially so with the Mediterranean provinces in mind, in, in sort of Egypt and Syria. We have evidence for 
at least the literary use of languages like Coptic and Greek and uh, Syriac, a, a version of Aramaic. So we can see other languages being used by communities as well. But Arabic is actually spreading at this time. We in in some of the monasteries in Palestine, for example, over over the ninth and tenth centuries, we see Arabic being used by the Christian communities there more and more. They translate the, uh, the Bible into Arabic. They compose you know, original compositions of their own in Arabic. So we do see the use of Arabic spreading beyond just the the administration at this time. Um, and it, I don't know, it probably is becoming spoken more commonly as well at this time. Although of course there's less, well, there's less evidence for that, and 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 it, it's probably it's probably that's probably a little less clear. But so Arabic is definitely the language of administration, and it is it is spreading as a language of of written culture amongst communities that hadn't always been using Arabic as well. Are there two or three architectural highlights? from this period in these areas that we're speaking about that you want to mention? The, the architectural highlight that leaps immediately to mind is not is actually in, in Cairo. Um, it's the mosque of Ibn Tulun. Uh, it, it, Ibn Tulun was actually a one of these, he was the governor of Egypt in the, in the late, ninth century but he was one of these governors who um proclaimed wanted to was quite keen on consolidating his own authority um he he always worked within the 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 orbit if you like of Abbasid politics and and in that sense never became a completely independent ruler but he acted in very independently for much of the time and to, to the point of of explicitly disobeying instructions that came from uh, the caliphal representatives and the caliphal administration at times, uh, but he he's well he's associated with a uh, the foundation of a of a, a region that's now part of part of Cairo, uh, and the centerpiece of this was was a mosque that you can, that's still there, the mosque of Tulun. It's um, and it's quite it's a it's a fairly sort of stunning example of of the potential scale of uh, architectural and architectural patronage in this period um, and also it's um it's got a sort of interesting slightly spiraled minaret which to some extent reflects the uh, the minarets of the abbasid capital at samarra in iraq which is where ibn Saloum had originally come from there Caliphate eventually came to an end, but I'm going to ask why you think it lasted so long. The Umayyad Caliphate, uh, if I recall, I don't have the dates in front of me, if I recall it was 90 some years, the Umayyad Caliphate. Before then, there were, this came up in our last episode, four different Khalifas as part of the Rashidun Caliphate period. So if there's four, then mathematically if those are individuals lives that's that that's not going to amount to centuries their their caliphate lasted centuries why do you think that was i suppose it's largely down to the fact that the other groups that until 12 until the mongols conquered the actual 
you know, heartland of the Abbasi Caliphate, so Iraq and Baghdad, uh, for, for one reason or another, didn't get rid of them. So uh, the the first example is is in some ways perhaps the most interesting. A, a group called the Buyids, who were originally from from Dalam, a, a Caspian a province of Iran, uh, in the mid tenth century conquered Baghdad, but they they didn't get rid of the Abbasi Caliphs. They they maintained the the Abbasi Caliphs in office. Um, now they they and they completely controlled many of these caliphs. They, they in fact deposed one to replace to replace him with a more compliant relative. But but they didn't get rid of the office. And I suppose it's because of the legitimacy that could be the uh, something that the Abbasis had done. I guess over the preceding couple of centuries was cultivating an idea of of Abbasid authority as as being what underpinned the actual practical rule of other of other military more powerful commanders. So they were kept in in place as as a sort of an official figure who could delegate authority to to these figures. And then the, then the next group, the Seljuks, who replaced the Buyids in Baghdad in the mid eleventh century. Uh, also, then, by the I guess by this time, this this has been established. The Seljuks were Sunni Muslims when they conquered Baghdad. They kept the Abbasid Caliphate in place as the as the ultimate source of their authority. Again, this doesn't mean that they paid much attention to the Abbasid Caliph in practice, but they but they kept them around as notional figureheads. And then it was the I guess it was the coming of the Mongols, who at the time they conquered Baghdad were not mostly Muslims that that led eventually got rid of the Caliph. So in some sense, their longevity is not is is due to the decision making of other conquering powers rather than rather than their own uh, sort of strategies for staying staying in staying in power. Okay, it's always good chatting with you, Harry, and you always provide succinct and clear answers. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Andrew. So again, everybody, Dr. Munt is author of the monograph, "The Holy City of Medina: Sacred Space in Early Islamic Arabia." I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Harry and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.